Earlier this year, WCAI aired a five-part science and nature series about ticks. We went into labs and met with researchers to bring listeners the newest understanding of tick ecology, how they travel, how they live, and how they survive. Some people think of ticks as a summer problem, but the fall is actually the most dangerous time of year when it comes to being bitten by ticks because the adult stage ticks in the grasses, woods, and leaf litter right now already have had two meals. That means they are twice as likely to carry disease. In today's special edition of The Point, we bring you all five of the stories from our series Tiny Predators Facing Cape Cod's Tick Problem. Here's WCAI reporter Sean Corcoran. This is a flock of guinea hens. They're often called African pheasants because of their origins and the farmer's watchdog because of the sounds they make when spooked. They also can be called big-time consumers of ticks. I almost never find a tick when I've been staying in the open areas that they patrol. That's Rebecca Gilbert. She's one of the farmers at Native Earth Teaching Farm in Chilmark on Martha's Vineyard, where they've kept guinea fowl for about 15 years. Guineas really specialize in ticks, and I have personally seen a guinea fowl walk past an ant, look at a spider, and then see a tick and go for the tick. With tick-borne diseases becoming more prevalent, guinea hens are one of just a handful of biocontrol methods researchers are looking at as they search for innovative ways to take the fight directly to the tick. And if the guinea fowl eat ticks as advertised, Barnstable County's entomologist Larry Dapsis is up for giving them a try, though he has his doubts. I'd love to release 10,000 of those in Nickerson State Park and see, and see what happens. People on Cape Cod say there are more ticks than ever before. And the old-timers say that when they were young, they didn't see any black-legged ticks, more commonly known as deer ticks. The truth is, no one really knows when black-legged ticks arrived. Scientists only began paying attention to tick numbers on the Cape and Islands after they were well-established and people already were sick. The longest-running tick research project in the world is underway here at the Cary Institute in Millbrook, New York. Research that one day could be used to fight tick-borne diseases on the Cape and Islands. Okay. First trap, chipmunk. <laughs> yes. Peter Rockerman is the lead assistant on what's called the Mouse Project at the Cary Institute. I like to warm up with a mouse or two before I go for a chipmunk. They're a little difficult to wrangle. <laughs> Each morning, Rockerman and his crew of four researchers put on baggy white jumpsuits. They tuck their pants into their socks and head into the woods. There, they check rows of safety deposit box-sized traps for mice, chipmunks, and squirrels small mammals known to carry ticks and Lyme disease. Rockerman sits on the ground and takes out a scale, some tools, and a reinforced plastic freezer bag. He shakes the chipmunk out of the trap and into the bag. He snags it by the scruff of the neck and notes things such as its sex and weight, and he counts how many ticks are on the head and ears. It's the same information that's been collected from trapped animals here for more than 20 years. Check it out right here, that little spot right at the tip of the tweezers there, just the maybe two millimeters diameter, that little circle spot. That's a larva. So this tick is getting its first blood meal right now. The tick also is likely contracting Lyme disease at the same time because one answer to the chicken and egg riddle, which came first, the tick or the Lyme disease, could be the mouse. Ticks are born disease-free. They typically acquire Lyme disease from their favorite meal the white-footed mouse. Mice are excellent hosts because there are lots of them on the forest floor, and they are very poor groomers. Research shows that between 75 and 95 percent of ticks feeding on mice 
will contract Lyme disease. Okay, so right now we're sort of between two peak tick seasons. The nymphal peak usually happens in uh, May to June, and we expect a larval peak in August. Richard Ostfeld is one of the world's leading researchers in Lyme disease ecology and a senior scientist at the Cary Institute. He says that much of what people assume is true about ticks is actually wrong. They don't jump or leap from trees. Even the common name deer tick is a misnomer. By calling it the deer tick, you're helping to perpetuate this notion that um, there's a tight linkage between deer numbers and tick numbers and that all you need to know about Lyme disease risk is how many deer there are and all you need to do to control Lyme disease is control the deer herd. And those are ideas that have been largely discredited. The conventional wisdom about warm winters being good for ticks and hot, dry summers being bad? Also untrue. Uh, we find very little impact of winter temperature or precipitation or summer temperature and precipitation on tick numbers. Tick numbers are driven largely by how many white-footed mice and secondarily chipmunks there are in the woods. Back in the woods, Rockerman knocks the bait out of a trap and gets ready to wrangle another mouse. Okay, well this project has been running for uh, approximately 20 years and it's looking at the interaction between uh, oak seed production or masting trees the mouse populations and tick populations. And so there's a really cool interaction between all three things there. In years when there's lots of acorns, such as in 2010, the following year we'll see a spike in the mouse population as mice are better able to survive the winter. And that's what happened. After the enormous acorn crop of 2010, 2011 saw a surge in mice numbers. That also meant that when the new baby ticks hatched last summer, they found lots of mice to feed on first year you see a lot of oak seeds, second year you see a lot of uh, an increase in the mouse population, and then in the following year, so uh, two years after a big oak masting, we see a lot of Lyme disease infected ticks. That's this year, 2012, and as predicted researchers say more nymphal ticks are on the ground than usual and they're monitoring what percentage are infected with Lyme. Ostfeld says that knowing the roles acorns and animals play in the lives of ticks is paramount to finding ways of stopping them before they reach us. You're listening to a special edition of The Point today. We bring you all five stories and our series, Tiny Predators, Facing Cape Cod's Tick Problem. In the second story, Sean Corcoran reports on the role birds play in the movement of ticks and how scientists are preparing for the arrival of new tick populations. The ticks are out in Wellfleet this year. At the Sven Bed and Breakfast, innkeeper Alexandra Grabe says that collectively, she and her husband have been bitten five times. Just the other day, in a room where a child had been sleeping, I found a tick on his sheet. And I immediately, you know, contacted his parents and said, you need to keep an eye out, you know, in case he was bitten. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're like indestructible. They're horrible. The inn is set back in the woods next to Old King's Highway a scenic, unpaved road that dates back to the colonial days. It's just a few miles to the seashore, but sometimes guests are so horrified by the presence of ticks that they flee. Grabe describes one family who found two ticks in a cottage. And these guests from England had a small child, a toddler, and they were terrified, and they actually left three days early because of the ticks. Grabe says she sees more ticks this year than last, and she attributes that to the weather. 
But ecologists now know that the abundance of small mammals such as mice, shrews, and chipmunks are what really determine whether young, disease-infected ticks prosper or die. But for ticks, blood meals appear to be catch-as-catch-can, and they'll just as readily latch on to a passing ground bird as a mouse. In fact, when it comes to long-distance travel, the birds are the ticks' most reliable form of transportation. Ornithologist Fern Locks points to the skies above the Linda Loring Nature Foundation on Nantucket at a pair of bomb-diving osprey. The osprey's calling away. She says, I don't care about ticks. <laughs> Nantucket is directly along one of the world's most significant migratory pathways for birds. It also has a significant tick problem. Apparently birds are, in fact, one of the, one of the ways that this, this moves around. Locks has scientific colleagues who have studied the correlation between tick movements and bird migrations. The ticks stay, hang on to the birds' heads, and, well, if these ospreys are going to South America for the winter, the towhees, the yellow warbler that we saw just crossing the road a little while ago, most of these birds are also going to Central or South America for the winter. And if there's ticks on their heads, you know, they'll, they'll travel along with them. Research shows that birds can carry ticks great distances during migrations, usually on the bird's head, which are difficult to groom. After taking blood for a few days, the ticks fall off the birds and into their new home. In fact, that's the working theory regarding how a new species of tick came to arrive on Cape Cod from the southern and western United States. The Lone Star Tick. That's Brenda Bolin, a retired biology professor and chairman of the Cape and Islands Lyme Disease Task Force. The first Lone Star Tick on the Cape was actually found here in Truro. It was found in a campground. And we learned about this tick because uh, the camper... Uh, realized that it was something interesting and took it to a ranger in the, in the national park. Since it first was identified on Cape Cod about six years ago, reports have become more frequent. The following year, uh, a Lone Star tick was found in Wellfleet uh, on the bay side where no people were. So presumably that tick had been delivered by some natural bird or whatever brought in. And then after that, t- a few ticks were found in Sandwich. And um, I had a dog picking them up in Truro. Ticks have different techniques for finding hosts, and the Lone Star is the ultimate tick predator. It sees its prey and hunts it down. The local black-legged ticks, more commonly called deer ticks, are more opportunistic. They wait on grasses and leaves along the forest floor for different mammals to come along. Adult black-legged ticks rarely are found on mice. Research shows they climb higher up from the forest floor than young nymphs and larvae perhaps seeking larger prey such as deer, raccoons, dogs, or horses. Black-legged ticks, the ones that carry Lyme disease, can sense carbon dioxide changes. So when a horse comes heavy breathing down the path, the tick raises its front pair of barbed arms like it's signaling a touchdown, and it waits for the horse to brush against it. Megan Amsler is regularly picking ticks off her horses in Falmouth. One of her older horses, Nazir, recently came down with Lyme disease, as have other local horses she knows about. I had, a, I had the vet come out, and she did a test on him and said, oh yeah, this poor guy, he's basically, his skin is crawling. You know, that's what it feels like to him, is that his skin is crawling. 2,300 miles away from Cape Cod, at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine in Saskatchewan, Canada, Associate Professor Katerina Lohman says she's trying to get ahead of the arrival of tick-borne diseases there. She recently began a study collecting horse blood samples from diagnostic labs to test them for anaplasmosis and Lyme. In the fall of 2010, I received a phone call from a veterinarian who 
was looking at a horse that was um, just kind of lethargic and it looked a little bit jaundiced. And so she had sent in some blood and they informed her from the lab that this horse had anaplasmosis. She was very surprised about that finding, as was I. Loman says she knows of the one horse and a few local dogs in the region who've been infected, which is a surprise because anaplasmosis has never been seen in this part of the world before. There shouldn't be any populations in Saskatchewan that we know of. The tick problem can't be attributed solely to migrating birds. If you blame the birds, you have to blame the mice. And then you have to blame the sugar maples and the oak trees that feed the mice. There's a lot of blame to go around. Ticks are free of Lyme disease when they hatch, and it takes an entire ecosystem of plants and animals to determine the tick's survival and whether or not it will become infected with disease. You're listening to a special edition of The Point. Today we bring you all five stories in our series, which aired earlier this year, Tiny Predators Facing Cape Cod's Tick Problem. In the third story in our series, WCAI reporter Sean Corcoran discusses the remarkable increase in tick-borne infections in our region and what could be happening in the ecosystem to account for it. Earlier this year, during the month of May, bright green bows began appearing all over Upper Cape Cod. They were on houses, in parks, and wrapped around trees. Mashpee resident Pamela Ganjemi was one of the people who really embraced the idea of using ribbons to alert people about Lyme disease. We really want to bow every town on the Cape. We, do, we don't have the manpower. We're, we're small. Ganjemi is part of the group Lyme Awareness of Cape Cod. In her case, the disease went undiagnosed for about 14 years, and she's presently being treated for 10 different medical conditions related to Lyme and her weakened immune system. Getting parents to pay attention to Lyme disease is one of Ganjemi's goals. Another is to get people to understand that it's not just about Lyme. Ticks often carry more than one infection, co-infections such as tularemia, anaplasmosis, and babesiosis. In fact, that last one, babesiosis, is exploding both on the Cape and Islands and statewide. From 2010 to 2011, the confirmed babesiosis cases in Massachusetts more than doubled from 79 to 191. While also passed from ticks, babesiosis is a very different illness than Lyme disease it can be quickly fatal. It's not a bacteria like Lyme, but a protozoa that gets into the red blood cells to mature and multiply. It's usually easier to diagnose than Lyme, but as Dick Young of Yarmouthport now knows, that's not always the case. The 83-year-old says he just woke up one morning feeling unsteady, and his wife noticed he was drenched in sweat. I had some sort of rash. I didn't know what it was. But when she put her hand on my shoulder... I was soaking wet in bed upstairs here, soaking wet. I wasn't sick to my stomach or feeling. I was just rocky on my feet of walking. I knew something was wrong. This happened last Labor Day weekend. Young went immediately to his doctor, and for two days they did tests. The third day he gave me all the paperwork, and he said, get out of here. Go to the emergency room and give them the paperwork. I can't find out what's wrong with you. He said, don't even stop at your home. At Cape Cod Hospital, two doctors interviewed Young about how he was feeling. They took the paperwork, disappeared. Twenty minutes later, they're back. And he said, Mr. Young, I know exactly what's wrong with you. Tick. Bibliosis. And they admitted me immediately there. Went upstairs for about three weeks. They were checking on me, and I was going downhill. Frankly, Young's friends and family thought he was going to die. 
His protozoa-filled red blood cells were bursting, and he was bleeding internally. Doctors rushed him into surgery, and his wife was told he may not survive the night. Lungs were going downhill, heart was going downhill, uh, kidneys were failing, so they knew that they had to find out where this bleeding was coming from because they were giving me blood all the time. Young credits Cape Cod Hospital was saving his life. But his and the 56 other confirmed cases in Barnstable County last year raises the question, what's infecting these ticks with Babesia, and why is the disease coming on so rapidly? Dr. Richard Ostfeld is a senior scientist at the Cary Institute for Ecosystem Studies and author of the book Lyme Disease, The Ecology of a Complex System. He notes the timing of the arrival of different tick-borne diseases as compared to Lyme. What has happened is that the ticks showed up in new areas in the Northeast, and Lyme disease was right there. As the tick population went, so went Lyme disease. Well, it took about a decade after the occurrence of Lyme disease before anaplasmosis showed up. And then it took about another decade for babesiosis to show up. Ticks are born disease-free. They get infected by the different hosts they bite. So what do we know from that? Well, we know that it wasn't just the ticks. The ticks were here, but there was very little, if any, anaplasmosis, very little, if any, babesiosis. Something needed to move the pathogen to infect the ticks. Ostfeld's hypothesis is that different animals, different tick hosts, may be spreading babesiosis more slowly to ticks than what happened with Lyme. One possibility is that, for instance, songbirds play a stronger role in Lyme disease than they do in these other tick-borne diseases. Songbirds move more quickly and have larger ranges than some of these other hosts. So they might have moved Lyme-infected ticks whereas it took the slower mammals more time to move the other tick-borne diseases into the tick population. Researchers at the Cary Institute are working on a comprehensive list of the hosts that transmit babesiosis and anaplasmosis. Once that basic science is complete, decisions can be made about how to interrupt the spread of co-infections like babesiosis from the animal world to us. You're listening to a special edition of The Point. Today we're airing all five stories in our series, Tiny Predators, Facing Cape Cod's Tick Problem. In the fourth installment of our series, WCAI's Sean Corcoran reports on the debate surrounding treatment and diagnosis of Lyme disease. Harwich resident Janice Walk kept the tick that bit her a few weeks ago. She takes it out of the crumpled envelope and puts it on her workbench. Yep, there it is. Adult tick. Can you see it? Walk doesn't know how long the tick was attached to her leg but she says it took a lot of effort to get it off. She then took it to the emergency room at Cape Cod Hospital. And they said, sure enough, there's, that's a tick bite. And they gave me a, a dose of doxycycline and said, if this becomes rashy or symptomatic, come back and we'll give you more doxycycline. A single preventative dose of doxycycline is the standard treatment for a patient who presents with a recent black-legged tick bite. Doctors say it's enough to kill the Lyme disease bacterium before it can establish itself in the body. In Walk's case, she says about two days later, she developed a red rash about two inches in diameter. This time, she went to her doctor's walk-in clinic, though she was on guard for trouble. She's been bitten before. I had found a tick on me a year before that, and knowing about ticks, I took it to the doctor as well. And it was a doctor at the same place, 
and she said, well, I can't really give you any antibiotics. And I just looked at her and I said, what would you do if this tick had been on you? And she just wrote the prescription right then and there and handed it to me. That didn't happen this time. At the clinic, she saw a nurse practitioner who looked at the wound. She looked at it and told me that it was not infected. And I said, it looks infected to me. And she said, well, it doesn't to me. And then I said, I would feel a lot more comfortable if you would give me more doxycycline so that I do not get Lyme disease from this because I'm not liking how it looks. And she said no. She was not going to give me doxycycline. Dotted across Cape Cod, the islands, and the south coast are dozens of people who say they suffer years later because Lyme disease went either misdiagnosed or mistreated. Walk's partner, Janice Summers, was one of them. Twenty years after a tick bite in Provincetown, she still has complications. Walk wasn't going to let that happen to her. She went to the black market for doxycycline. I'm not disclosing where, but I had gotten some doxycycline, so I just took it on my own. Misdiagnoses of Lyme still happen, people say. Symptoms vary from person to person, and if enough time goes by before treatment with antibiotics, Lyme can become well-entrenched in the body and much more difficult to kill. In fact, that's where the Lyme debate gets really ugly. Just as there's controversy about how to initially treat tick bites, there's considerably more disagreement among patients and even doctors themselves about how to best treat long-term Lyme disease. Certainly in the field of infectious diseases, it's the most contentious debate. I don't know about all the other fields of medicine. Dr. David Pombo is the director of infectious disease prevention at Cape Cod Healthcare. The story is complicated because it's a type of bacterium that can persist in the body. And there are animal models showing that standard therapy that we use for humans doesn't really always eradicate the bacterium. Uh, Whether that's true in humans, it's not clear. Dr. Paul Atwater is the clinical director for the Division of Infectious Diseases at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine in Maryland. He says he does believe that when left untreated, Lyme does not respond well to antibiotics and can leave patients with persistent symptoms, such as chronic muscle aches, fatigue, and what's called brain fog, when patients don't feel as sharp mentally as they once did. Sometimes these people are misdiagnosed, he says, but his primary disagreement comes with the treatment. Myself, I like to practice what I hope is the best recommendations for my patients. And if I thought long-term antibiotics work because of compelling evidence, you'd be sure I'd adopt it. But I don't think that's the case. Mashpee resident Kim Costa is a registered nurse who at first thought she was bitten by a spider last year. But she came down with debilitating migraine headaches, and an ER physician recommended she get a Lyme test. So she went to her primary care doctor. He looked at my thing and said, ah, it's healing, you don't need any antibiotics. He said, that's not Lyme. You don't need to have a Lyme titer. So I left there and he told me to take extra strength, etc. I left with no antibiotics and I left with no order to get a Lyme test. It was a homeopathic doctor who later gave Costa a Lyme test. And she sent the test out, and by the beginning of September, I was positive. So I had gone from June to September with um, with Lyme. Costa doesn't know how you prevent misdiagnoses and lack of treatment, though better, more accurate testing would probably help. One thing she does advocate is bringing in ecologists, people aware of how ticks live and how they get on us, in order to take the fight directly to the tick. Uh, manipulate the environment for a few years and help bring down the, the level of ticks, but I don't see that happening. Researchers are thinking about ways to manipulate the environment. 
In fact, the EPA is working through several years of data gathered on the Cape and Islands at what are called four poster deer feeding stations, where the animals are dosed with insecticides when they come to eat corn. Because the medical and Lyme communities remain at odds over diagnosis and treatment, one solution to the Lyme problem may be found in the woods and marshes surrounding us. In this final story, WCAI reporter Sean Corcoran looks at some of the new products coming on the market that are designed to help keep ticks off us so we can avoid their dangerous bites. Walk into Eastern Mountain Sports in Hyannis, and the anti-tick clothing is straight ahead and towards the back. Right over here. Eric Johnson is the store manager. He points to a rack of egg white shirts and light khaki-colored pants. You notice these garments are long sleeve and long pants because if you're not covering those parts of your body, it can't do its job. Impregnated in the fabric of these clothes is an insecticide and repellent called permethrin. It's the most commonly used chemical weapon in the war against ticks. In a way, permethrin comes from flowers, but it's man-made, a synthetic version of a naturally occurring extract from the chrysanthemum flower. Permethrin is highly toxic to honeybees, fish, and cats. It's also not for use directly on human skin. Permethrin is a key chemical when it comes to preventing ticks from getting on us. And researchers also are developing innovative ways to get permethrin onto the animals ticks feed upon. Richard Ostfeld is a leading tick researcher and a senior scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in Millbrook, New York. Ostfeld says scientists are looking at different fungi that might be used against ticks. They're exploring vaccines that would have the body attack the actual tick as soon as it latches onto us. And there's been work with natural tick enemies, such as parasitic wasps, that reproduce right inside the tick. Right now, one of the most promising methods to cut down on tick numbers is something called a four-post deer feeding station. Attract deer with corn, then give them a good dose of permethrin while they're eating. You can kill about 70% of the ticks if you run these things year after year. You know, you, you, you can't stop because the ticks bounce right back. But if you have the deer stations deployed permanently, then you can put a big dent in the tick population. These feeding stations are refrigerator-sized plastic boxes baited with a few hundred pounds of corn and armed with four 9-inch paint rollers. The rollers are treated with permethrin, and to eat, an animal must brush against them. The permethrin kills adult ticks on the deer before they can lay eggs, and one of the reasons Ostfeld and others are optimistic that the stations could make a difference is because they don't just treat deer, but also other large mammals that are involved in the life cycle of the tick. So even though the device is targeted at a single species, there is excellent evidence that, in fact, these four-posters draw in raccoons, skunks, opossums, foxes, coyotes, turkeys, crows, you name it. Researchers know that younger ticks often find their way onto mice, chipmunks, and shrews. So a private company is expected to return to market a device called a bait box, a small plastic box with food bait that can attract smaller animals and treat them with insecticide. Osfeld says it's possible that tick-heavy regions could benefit from combining bait boxes with the four poster stations. The more of these devices you have out, the higher the percentage of the rodent population you're going to treat. Political discussions about Lyme disease have been ongoing since the 80s. But with more people becoming infected and with other tick-borne diseases on the rise, some lawmakers are paying attention. A Beacon Hill Commission is working on a set of recommendations for better treatment and awareness of tick diseases, as well as suggestions for controlling tick populations. One discussion underway is combining existing mosquito control programs with a tick spraying program. Officials aren't sure yet if that's even feasible, 
but they are certain that more people need to know just what they're up against in the fight to remain tick and disease-free. For WCAI, I'm Sean Corcoran. You've been listening to a special edition of The Point. This series was produced with the support of our Circle of Ten funders. You can hear these stories again or see pictures at our website, capeandislands.org. I'm Indy Todd. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.